Hello everyone, Noah Tetzner here, host of the History of Vikings. For those of you who don't know, I host another historical podcast in addition to the History of Vikings. It's called Victoria's World, a 15-episode exploration of life and death during the age of Queen Victoria. In just a few moments, I'm going to play you a recent episode of the podcast, which is about the charge of the Light Brigade. I hope you enjoy it, and check out my new podcast, Victoria's World, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Without further ado, here's an episode of my new podcast, Victoria's World. This is Victoria's World, and I'm Noah Tetzner. During the Victorian era, the British feared Russian expansion into a failing Ottoman Empire. So, in 1853, joined France and the Ottomans in a military alliance against Russia, thus starting the Crimean War. From the famous charge of the Light Brigade to the renowned medical reforms of Florence Nightingale, the Crimean War is a conflict packed with incredible historical moments. Today, My guest and I will be discussing several of them. Joining me today to discuss the Crimean War is Professor Andrew Lambert, Lawton Professor of Naval History in the Department of War Studies at King's College. Professor Lambert is the author of multiple books pertaining to military and naval history and has written books about our topic of conversation today, one of which is titled The Crimean War, British Grand Strategy Against Russia, 1853 to 1856. Professor Lambert, thank you so much for joining me today. That's a great pleasure, Noah. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I'm uh, so delighted to be able to discuss the Crimean War with you today, a topic which I don't know perhaps nearly as much as I should about. My first question to you today is this, sort of setting the stage for our discussion. Uh, what what, What is sort of the background to the Crimean War. What was the British military doing in Crimea? And simply put, why did the war begin? The Crimean War, which is, as we'll probably discuss later, completely misnamed, is a small limited war that comes in the middle of a century-long Cold War, to use a 20th century term, between the British Empire and the Russian Empire. The two great winners of the Napoleonic conflict, Russia now dominates Eastern Europe. It's expanding in Central Asia, in East Asia. It's becoming an enormous terrestrial empire with huge human resources. And the British Empire is completely different. It has a tiny little terrestrial base on an island off the north coast of Europe. And it controls the world ocean. It's defeated all the other navies of the world. It has fairly much undisputed command of all of the great oceans. And it owns and operates the largest merchant fleet the world has ever seen, which connects it to a string of overseas possessions, most of which are port cities linking British trade into a hinterland, which is not generally controlled by the British. Uh, The exception to that rule is India, where the British have taken a rather more territorial control than they wished because Indian political structures have been imploding throughout the 18th century and the only way to maintain trade was to impose order. 
So these two empires have ideologically divergent worldviews. Russia is fundamentally conservative uh, in its faith, in its structures. And the Russian Empire has never got over being annihilated and steamrolled by Genghis Khan's golden horde. Uh, They fear invasion. They fear the other. They're terrified of the outside world. And they want to build the biggest fortress the world has ever seen to protect themselves while slowly inching forward into the territory of their neighbors. The British really don't want any territory. They just want to make more money and they want to do more trade. The Russians put up tariff barriers against British trade. And if, as the Russians plan, they take over the Turkish Empire, that will destroy a very large part of Britain's Mediterranean commerce and adversely affect Britain's balance of payments. So as the Russians put more and more pressure on Turkey, British commercial interests mean that they will come and back the Turks. They also don't want the Russian fleet in the Mediterranean, but that's a very secondary issue. Uh, And then there's the possibility that Russia might invade India through Afghanistan, but that's a really visionary piece of nonsense dreamt up by some unemployed British soldiers. The real threat is to the British economy. And what the Russians fear is that British ideas like democracy, freedom of speech, the rule of law, uh, and responsible uh, government will get into the Russian system and Russians will start to ask why they don't have a proper government like other people. It's a question Russians still ask to this day, but they're not allowed to talk about it in public any more now than they were back then. Hmm. Fascinating, fascinating. So uh, what were sort of the first signs of um, the Crimean War, which, as you mentioned, is perhaps incorrectly named? Um, What are the first sort of um, plays of the British Empire, if you will, as they were moving troops to back Turkey in Russia? The war begins in a crisis in what we all euphemistically refer to as the Holy Land, um, a serious stand-up fight between Roman Catholic monks and Orthodox Russian monks over who controlled various of the Christian shrines. Palestine was then ruled by the Ottoman Turks, who really couldn't care which bunch of infidels was in charge of what, so they basically fobbed them both off with what sounded like a promise that they could run the shrines. And when the French sent a big battleship to put a bit of pressure on the Turks, the Russians responded by sending a lot of force. And essentially what had been a diplomatic problem suddenly became a strategic military issue. Britain then had to make its mind out which side it was on because it didn't really approve of what the French were doing or the Russians. They were both causing trouble and they were both destabilizing the region. But eventually they realized that Russia had the power to take over the Ottoman Empire and destroy Britain's interests, whereas France was really looking for some domestic payoff. The the new emperor of France wanted to show his citizens that he was a tough guy and that he would look after the interests of the Catholic Church. Very much what uh, Erdogan is doing um, just at the moment in Syria, he's, he's showing off to appease his domestic uh, audience and to show that he's a, he's a big player on the world stage. It's got very little to do with external politics. So eventually, the British decide they will go. They will work with the French because France is trying to uphold Turkey as Britain is. And the first thing the British do is work out where they're going to attack the Russians to make the point. And the question is, where is Russia vulnerable? And the answer is anywhere on the coast. The Russian capital in those days is St. Petersburg. So the first thought is actually to send a fleet into the Baltic and to put pressure on the Russians at St. Petersburg. 
but a fleet and an army has to be sent to Istanbul to defend the city against the Russians. And when the Russian attack doesn't materialize, they end up sending the Anglo-French army to the Crimea. And the whole object of that campaign, which is not the whole of the war by any stretch of the imagination, is to capture and destroy the Russian naval base at Sevastopol. So British thinking starts with defending Istanbul, and it moves swiftly on to what the British always want to do, which is to burn everybody else's naval base. Hmm. And what was the Russian uh, Navy like at this time? Were they a um, serious threat to the Great British Navy of that era? The Russian Navy in 1854, particularly in the Black Sea, is reasonably well built, quite well manned. Um, you know, it, it looks like quite a good navy, but it's a sailing ship navy, and the British have already moved into a largely steam-powered navy. And the Russians have no intention of going to sea and fighting the British, even one-on-one. They don't like those odds. Uh, They will only go to sea if they are overwhelmingly superior. So in the whole of the war, there are no naval battles between the British and the Russians because the Russians will not come out of harbor. So the British have to go into the harbor and and attack them inside their naval base. Hmm. Now, what was the British experience like throughout the beginning, middle, and eventual end of the Crimean War? I mean, there's so many historical moments that come to mind, the famous charge of the Light Brigade, or perhaps the writings of the military nurse uh, Florence Nightingale. Um, So could you give us a little insight as to what the British experience was like during the war? I think there's two things we have to be clear about. There is the prominent and well-known events of the Crimean campaign, which are prominent and well-known because they were very well reported, and in many of them were evidence of incompetence, negligence, and folly. So there's a public Crimean war, the charge of the Light Brigade, which you mentioned, uh, is part of that narrative. And it's a narrative, a very uplifting narrative, in which the British make a lot of mistakes and come out on top anyway. Um, it's the way the British have always managed expectations, but also managed to hide their professionalism from their potential opponents. By persuading your enemy that you're incompetent and amateurish, uh, you can gain major advantages. This is certainly true in the wars of the 19th and 20th century. Britain is very good at this thing, but it doesn't want to tell everybody. One historical figure of the Crimean War who has always fascinated me is the field nurse Florence Nightingale, the famous Lady with the Lamp, um, a remarkable woman who is considered today to be the founder of the modern field of nursing. Uh, Now, Florence Nightingale grew up uh, in a wealthy family of Italian descent uh, and grew up in England. Uh, During that time, nursing was not considered to be a suitable profession for a young lady of the upper class. And um, only after much conflict uh, did Florence persuade her parents to allow her to study nursing in Germany. She then, of course, arrived at the Crimean Front, and in 1853, the first year of the Crimean War, there were over 18,000 wounded British soldiers. Now, upon her arrival in Crimea, Florence uh, was rather disgusted with the conditions of field hospitals, and 
established many things that we would consider to be common practice in hospitals today. Uh, she established uh, proper laundry mats in all of the hospitals, ensuring that soldiers uh, were provided clean sheets and clean clothing. She revamped the hospital kitchens, ensuring that soldiers were provided nutritious food, and of course provided them libraries and a way um, to send their pay checks home to their family uh, back in England. Now, Florence Nightingale, of course, lived in a time when the existence of germs and hygiene today, uh, as we understand it, was not as, um, shall we say, mainstream. So one thing that's always fascinated me, and indeed this was mentioned in my interview briefly, the first episode of the podcast with Sarah Chrisman, the book published by Florence Nightingale on her experience during the Crimean War. So she has always been a character that has fascinated me, and I can only encourage you all to uh, pick up a copy of her book if you can manage to get your hands on one. So when the army lands in the Crimea, there are 50,000 British and French troops. They march towards Sevastopol. They fight a serious battle on the River Alma. They defeat the Russians and drive them off uh, with very heavy losses. They then march round the city of Sevastopol and lay siege to it. And they're planning within six weeks of landing to assault the city, capture it and destroy it and leave before the winter weather breaks. Unfortunately, they don't proceed quickly enough. The Russians manage to fortify the base strongly enough to resist. And then there are a series of battles in the autumn, early winter, which the Battle of Balaclava, the famous charge, is the first, where the Russians essentially are throwing their army against the Anglo-French army to try and distract it from attacking Sevastopol. And because the British troops are tied up laying siege to Sevastopol, the only troops who are not engaged are the cavalry, who have not much use in a siege trench. So the Light Brigade, just over 600 troopers, uh, end up being used to recover some guns that have been abandoned on the battlefield, field artillery. They're given wrong directions, and instead of going to pick up a few guns that have been abandoned, they stage a frontal charge against some very powerful Russian gun batteries down a long, straight, flat valley. It's always told that this was a disaster and a catastrophe. It was nothing of the sort. Uh, less than 130 British troopers were killed or wounded in the charge. Uh, slightly more of the horses were killed or wounded. Uh, they rode through the Russian batteries. Uh, they captured the guns. They couldn't carry them off, but they captured them. They then drove off 3,000 Russian cavalry. Um, and that wasn't the whole of the Light Brigade. That was about 250 troopers. Uh, from that point on, the Russians never, ever came out again on horseback. Uh, and they were petrified of the British because the troopers who conducted the charge were sober. And the Russians didn't believe that sober men could do that. <laughs> they were also petrified because the British horses were superb animals that have been scientifically bred over the previous 50 years. And they are the ancestors of most modern sporting and racing horses. Uh, much bigger horses than the Russians had, much more powerful and much greater endurance. So in many ways, this was a demonstration of capability, uh, which has a, a very negative effect on the Russians. There's then another battle at the Inkerman where British infantry are attacked in by overwhelming Russian forces, who they drive off. 
Um, so these are heroic but somewhat incompetent performances where the British either made mistakes or were surprised. But they just grind the Russians down. And then in the summer of 1855, they send a fleet into the Sea of Azov, which again has recently been in the news. They take control of the sea. They destroy the food supply for animals and humans in Sevastopol. And the city falls on September the 9th, 1855, to a brilliant tactical operation by the French Imperial Guard. But that isn't why the war ends. The war ends because the British destroy the Russian economy. Russia is bankrupt by the middle of 1855. They knock down a major fortress in the Baltic, and they begin plans to knock down the great fortress of Kronstadt outside St. Petersburg and destroy the Russian capital city. They don't do this in secret. They do it in public, and the Russians realize that the British were about to escalate from a limited war about Turkey to a total war in which the Russian Empire might well be destroyed. The Russians at this point surrender and begin a 50-year program of trying to reconstruct their country to make it into a modern, uh, forward-looking state that's capable of operating in the real world. So Russia is catastrophically defeated, um, and it will not be until the 1890s that Russia is really capable of behaving as a great power again. So this defeat is, in many ways, more serious than the defeat of losing the Cold War. And what was it that destroyed the Russian economy? Was it naval pressure from the British Empire? Was it just the sheer, I guess, just number of dollars that the Russian government had to pour into their military? The Russian economy has always been fundamentally vulnerable to blockade, economic sanctions, as we call them in the modern age. Russia depends on exporting a very small number of low-value goods in very large quantities. So in the 1850s, it was grain, timber, animal pelts, um, low-grade smelted iron, really bulky, heavy things, and they had to be carried away by ship. And the only ships that were around to carry them away were British ships. And the main market for most of these goods was in Britain. So when the British stopped buying these things from the Russians, the Russian economy imploded. They couldn't raise any money. They had no capital. And the British made sure they couldn't borrow any money from banks anywhere else in the world. So their economy nosedived. Uh, there were bread riots, there were conscription riots, and Russia was heading for either revolution or catastrophe. And Russia is the same today. It relies on the export of two basic products, oil and gas. And if the rest of the world stopped buying those, its economy would collapse. Mm. Indeed. Now, I just want to go back to the charge of the Light Brigade um, for a moment. Now, you mentioned that the charge of the Light Brigade is perhaps not the great, you know, um, tactical disaster that... Um, we view it as today. And of course, it was made famous by Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Now, why is that? Why was it sort of used through propaganda and painted as this great defeat when in reality, the British uh, who charged directly towards the Russian artillery managed to capture those artillery batteries? It all begins on the day of the battle. The war reporter, the, the first great modern war reporter, William Howard Russell, was there when the Light Brigade mustered at the end of the charge, and he observed there were about 140 men. And he concluded that all the rest had been killed. Uh, this was entirely erroneous. Most of the rest were either walking um, or walking their wounded horses back up the valley. Uh, less than 100 had been killed or captured. So his original report is of a catastrophe. 
And he blames the catastrophe on the incompetence of the aristocratic officers, particularly uh, Lord Lucan, who's in charge of the whole British cavalry division, uh, and his brother-in-law and great enemy, Lord Cardigan, who actually led the charge. Uh, so the, the basic tenet of Russell's report was that all these fine, upstanding working-class soldiers had been led to their deaths by a couple of aristocratic idiots, uh, and that this was a very bad reflection on the class system. Uh, Tennyson read this and wrote the poem. Uh, a few weeks later, Russell had to recant and point out that actually the casualties had not been as he'd reported them. But his original report is the one that everybody has read. It's the one that shapes opinion. Hmm. And when Tennyson read this, he decided that the poem was so good that he was not going to go back because he couldn't achieve the same kind of effect if it really wasn't such a disaster after all. Uh, what he'd written was a poem of a very inaccurate report. And that is how we understand the charge of the Light Brigade. So it's bad reporting and brilliant poetry. The Charge of the Light Brigade of 1854 is one of those iconic battles in military history. And it occurred during the Battle of Balaclava, during the Siege of Sevastopol, which was the British initiative to take over the Russian naval base of Sevastopol. I can only encourage all of you listening today to go back to episode four of this podcast, my conversation with literature expert Heidi White, as we discussed the famous poem of Alfred Lord Tennyson, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Of course, in today's episode, as my guest so eloquently points out, the charge of the Light Brigade is perhaps not the great military blunder we all conventionally believe it to be. But I do encourage all of you listening to go back to episode four of this podcast and learn for yourself the significance of Lord Tennyson's poem, which really shaped British public opinion about the matter, and is indeed why so many today believe the Charge of the Light Brigade to be this great military blunder, when in actual reality it was perhaps um, not quite such a defeat. Now, throughout the Crimean War. If one is to compare and contrast the strengths of the British military and the Russian military, what are some things that we should keep in mind? The first thing to remember is that the most important fighting force in the whole war is the Royal Navy. The war is entirely fought on Russian soil because the Navy dominates not just the Baltic and the Black Sea, but also the White Sea and the Far Pacific, where there are combat operations as well. So without the Royal Navy, there isn't going to be a war because nobody's going to get to anywhere, particularly not the Crimea. So that's Britain's primary fighting force. Britain is a sea power state. It's senior service. Its lead fighting arm is, is the Navy. Even at the siege of Sevastopol, most of the heavy artillery used to knock the fortress down is, is naval, and a large proportion of the gunners are naval as well. The British Army is a small landing force designed to be landed by the and supported by the Navy, and its primary target is places like Sevastopol, enemy naval bases. The British Army is small, but a British regiment is a very good fighting unit, and it's mobile. It can be put on a couple of ships and moved around the world quite easily. The Russian army, by contrast, is an enormous static army which relies on 
mass rather than any individual proficiency. The Russians are still using weapons left over from the Napoleonic Wars. The British are now using rifled muskets, so muzzle-loading, but rifled guns of the type that are used in the American Civil War. And as a result, in the firefights at the Alma and the Inkerman, British infantry are able to dominate the Russians despite being heavily outnumbered because of their accurate long-range rifle fire. And at close quarters, they have a much greater degree of initiative and low-level leadership. In the Russian army, everything is ordered from the top, and nobody below the rank of captain gives any orders to anybody. In the British Army, the only people who matter are the sergeants and the senior NCOs because they're the people who actually run the battle. The officers lend a bit of character and quality to the business, but it's the sergeants, the NCOs, the corporals, uh, and it's the the initiative and the skill of long-service regular professional soldiers, and that's what makes the difference. If you're in London, the Great Crimean War Monument features three Grenadier Guardsmen not even sergeants, private soldiers who fought heroically at the Battle of the Inkerman. You know, these are real soldiers, and it's their ability to respond to the threat without being told what to do uh, that marks the two armies out as different. Russians are brave, but they've not been given any space in which to think for themselves. The army does not expect a Russian soldier to think. His job is to do as he's told. In the British army, they rely on the troops using their own judgment in tight situations. Is it a fair characterization to say that Russia is, uh, the Russian leadership, government, and military is for all intents and purposes backward during this war? I mean, their failure to modernize their military, and you mentioned their exports, and their entire economy is sort of based off of um, low-income trade. Russia is a static country. Uh, You have to remember the Tsar of Russia in this war, Nicholas I, who it's worth remembering is Vladimir Putin's favorite czar, had been to Paris in 1814 at the end of the Napoleonic Wars when the Russians mustered nearly 100,000 troops on the Champ de Mars to parade to the world that they were now the dominant military force. Um, Avril Harriman said to Stalin at the end of the war when the Soviets had got to Berlin, I said, you know, Comrade Stalin, your troops have got all the way to Berlin. Yes, he said, but Tsar Alexander got to Paris. So the Russians are living off the glory of 40 years earlier when their army not only defeated Napoleon, the greatest warlord of all time, but also marched right across Europe to Paris. And they're still thinking about the world they created in that war, which they wish to uphold and preserve forever. So yes, it's a static society with a static structure and it relies on nationalism and a great deal of religious zeal uh, to maintain order and a huge army of nearly a million men. So it's a heavily militarized society that's fighting to preserve what it likes and is not interested in in progress. In fact, it it finds all progress really quite alarming. This war is the one that persuades them they're going to have to change. Mm. Fascinating. And indeed, a military society, when compared to perhaps the heavily militaristic society of Prussia, um, is not focused on modern tactics and military technology. Um, Rather, I suppose, religious zeal and tradition, as you mentioned, correct? Well, Nicholas I's wife is a Prussian princess. Um, The Prussian king is essentially his nephew-in-law. 
he has an enormous amount of influence in Prussia, uh, but also he takes an awful lot out of Prussia in terms of ideas and approaches to the military. So if you read the list of German of uh, Russian generals, you'll find many of them have surprisingly Russian names because they come from the Baltic German aristocracy in places like Estonia, Lithuania, Northern Poland. So Russia is, is heavily Germanized in many ways, and that Russian-Prussian connection is a very strong one. They're both very fearful of France, not just militarily, but ideologically. France is revolutionary. It's, it's destabilizing. It's challenging the status quo. And both Russia and Prussia want to preserve these things forever. And the British are somewhere in between. They don't mind a bit of progress, but they're, they're not in favor of French progress. Uh, but they certainly don't see any purpose in holding back uh, the emergence of, of a modern world. Hmm. Uh, now, earlier we discussed the consequences of the war for Russia. Uh, they weren't able to recover their destroyed economy until approximately the 1890s. But what was the result in the war's end for the British Empire? Were they pleased with their military victories and were they able to maintain their great Mediterranean trade? The simple answer is yes, they maintained their trade and their trade continued to expand. And shortly after the war, there was a second round of conflict with Imperial China that led to further trade extensions in that region as well. Britain spends the 19th century fighting small wars with powers that won't do business, uh, Russia, China, Egypt, and, and several others. It's the reason they don't like the Union government in the American Civil War is because of their very high tariff policy. And it's not an ideological issue, it's an economic issue. The only reason they like the Southern Confederacy is because it's a free trade zone. Um, they disapprove entirely of its social structure. When the war ends, the British stage a massive parade to celebrate their victory. And most people don't even know this happened. On St. George's Day, the National Day of England, on that's the 23rd of April, 1856, a massive fleet was paraded at Spithead, that's the great ceremonial anchorage outside Portsmouth, on the south coast of England. It was the fleet that had been assembled to bombard and destroy Kronstadt and St. Petersburg. And the Queen attended, the Parliament attended, uh, foreign diplomats and their assistants attended, and the, the press attended. This was the largest demonstration of naval power the world had ever seen. And its sole purpose was to remind the rest of the world who ruled the ocean and that it really was a rather futile business to challenge the British at this. Um, there was no parade for the army because the army didn't come home covered in glory. It came home having done a fairly good job um, and been on the winning side. But the Navy was absolutely dominant and that was the thing that the British emphasized. And so many historians, particularly in North America, who've only looked at the Crimean bit of the war, uh, think that there, this must have been a war in which the British suffered serious loss of, of prestige, of, of capability. It's anything but. Uh, the next major war they fight with another country, China, the gunboat fleet that was built to attack Kronstadt is used to knock down Chinese coastal forts. And in 1861, it's mobilized to knock down the the Union government's forts during the infamous Trent crisis when Britain nearly went to war with the Union government over its breach of international law. So Britain emerges from this remarkably 
effective and very powerful, having demonstrated what everybody thought Britain could do. Now it was real. They had proved Britain could sail into your harbour, sink your fleet, destroy your naval base. And from that point on, you would have no ships, no place to operate them from, and your economy would be destroyed. So Britain had proved its point. It didn't need a large army. What it needed was to maintain command of the sea and to maintain the legal instruments that allowed it to enforce economic warfare to great effect. And those are the instruments that lay the foundation of victory in both of the world wars of the 20th century. Mm, Fascinating. Well, Professor Andrew Lambert, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today here on the podcast, and I uh, can only encourage everyone listening to um, find out more about the great books you have written pertaining to uh, naval military history in the Crimean War. But before I let you go, um, are there a few of your books that you would like to mention to encourage our listeners today to pick up? Well, the book I wrote some years ago now on British Crown Strategy in the Crimean War, I think, is a was an attempt to get away from the Victorian sort of popular version of the war, which just a war the army fought in the Crimea in which the Navy doesn't feature and the war is settled in some inexplicable way by events in a part of Russia that's a very long way from Moscow. Um, my most recent book, Sea Power States, um, explains the difference between Britain and Russia in, in cultural and in ideological terms. Why is it that Russia is static uh, and anxious and fearful and heavily militarized, and Britain is exactly the opposite, um, and links that across time with other sea power and continental power states to try and get an idea of how we got to the situation we're in today and perhaps get people thinking about where we're going. Um, and for North American readers, uh, my book, The Challenge, about the War of 1812, again, an attempt to get people to, to think about this war in terms that were not set by the partisan propaganda written by the U.S. government at the point when the war ended in 1815. Mm. Um, the War of 1812 is not a spanking great success for the United States. They end up with their capital city burnt to the ground, functionally bankrupt and incapable of paying their own troops. Um, you know, by any measure, they lost the war, but that's not the story that the government wished to tell at the time. And if you read most American history textbooks, they still think they won this war. Um, there is no basis for this other than uh, an unwarranted assertion made at the time the peace was negotiated. And the British dictated the peace and the Americans had to sign it. It wasn't punitive because the last thing the British wanted was to conquer more territory in North America. They had plenty of North America in what is now Canada. They just wanted the Americans to stop invading it. That, that is what the war is about. And American, successive American invasions of Canada over four years, and the British defeat them. So you know, the point of, of history is to challenge some of the assumptions that people make mm. about the past, to challenge old versions of the past, because we live in a different world. And history is how we explain to ourselves the way in which we got to this point it is not about how the victorians got to the end of the crimean war it's about where that fits in the journey that we've been on since then right down to today and any history that isn't addressed to the present is missing the point history is not about the past it's about the present but it's about how the present understands the past and that is is ultimately the critical test of of all new history does it help us to understand that process better than we would have understood it before. 
And that's the audience that we need to look to. We need to keep people thinking about the past because the past changes. The world we live in changes, and every time it changes, the past changes. And our understanding of the past and present are linked. If you were around in 2014 when the Russians seized Sevastopol and the Crimea back from the Ukraine, it was really important to know why it mattered to the Russians. Otherwise, Western diplomats might have made bad mistakes in their response to President Putin's grab. A million Russians died fighting with Sevastopol in two great wars. They were never going to give it up, and they would have gone to war over it. So it was best that we stood back on that one. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, again, Professor Lambert, thank you so much for joining me today. The Crimean War is a conflict that isn't given enough coverage in modern-day history books, in my opinion. So many things came out of the war, such as the usage of telegraphs, which provided the British public with somewhat live updates as to what was going on at the front. The Russian abolition of serfdom in 1861 and the medical reforms of field nurse Florence Nightingale, who is considered the founder of modern nursing. In today's episode, we only discussed a few of the many fascinating stories wrapped up in the Crimean War. I encourage all of you listening to go back and listen to episode four of this podcast, my interview with Heidi White, as we discuss Tennyson's famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, and how it relates to the Crimean War. Thank you all so much for listening today to the podcast. Do be sure to check out all of the other wonderful podcasts available on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. And when you do, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I'm Noah Tetzner, and this has been Victoria's World. Victoria's World